Okay. So are we ready to go? I'm ready. Yeah. So many, so many, so many damn books. Hello out there and welcome to So Many Damn Books, a blessing, a curse, a podcast. My name is Christopher and I am so excited to be joined today by Matt Johnson. Hi, Matt. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Matt Johnson is the Philip H. Knight Chair of the Humanities at the University of Oregon. His publications include the novels Loving Day and Pym, the nonfiction novella The Great Negro Plot, and the graphic novel Incognito. Johnson is a recipient of the American Book Award, the United States Artist James Baldwin Fellowship, the Hurston Wright Legacy Award, and the John Dos Passos Prize for Literature. And he is the most recent author of Invisible Things, which is probably my favorite thing I've read so far this year. I'm so excited to be talking to you. Thank you for coming. Oh, shit. You just made my day. <laughs> Bamba's mission is simple. Make the most comfortable clothes ever and match every item sold with an equal item donated. So when you buy Bamba's, you are also giving to someone in need. Bamba's designed their socks, shirts, and underwears to be the clothes you can't wait to put on every day. Everything they make is soft, seamless, tagless, and has a cozy feel. There's a pair of Bamba socks for everything you do. They come in tons of options, like comfy performance style made with sweat wicking yarn, which is perfect for a runner like me. And it also means that my feet stay cool while the rest of me works up a sweat. Bamba's no-show socks are designed for comfort while being specifically engineered to never fall down. So let your ankles be free to soak up the sunlight. Bamba's t-shirts are made with thoughtful design features like invisible seams, soft fabrics, and the perfect weight so they hang just right. Perfect for the summer. And Bamba's underwear is so breathable and fits so well, it fits like you're wearing nothing at all in a good way. And did you know that socks, underwear, and t-shirts are the three most requested clothing items at homeless shelters? That's why Bamba's donates one for every item you buy. So far, Bumba's customers like you have helped donate over 50 million items of essential clothing. So go to bumbas.com slash SMDB and get 20% off your purchase. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash SMDB for 20% off. Bombas.com slash SMDB. I wanted to make a special cocktail, of course, for the book. I am always obsessed with clear cocktails in, in general, like a martini or, and it seemed like this book in particular with a title like Invisible Things, you know, I, I, I think in a, a clear cocktail like this one here, which I'm just gonna call the Invisible Thing, it's, it's basically just a riff on a martini. And it's, uh, it's so it's gin and dry vermouth, but I've added in Luxardo Maraschino, which adds a little sweet herbal finish to the martini, along with some native floral strong water bitters. So you stir that and strain it in a normal martini, and I've garnished it with a lemon twist, which could stand in for what an invisible thing might look like if it weren't invisible. Who knows? Are you drinking anything special for the recording here? 
unfortunately, I just went to lunch and I had a couple Bloody Marys. <laughs> so I'm not going to be drinking anything. I just met up with a, a former student of mine um, to talk about their book. And um, yeah, I, I honestly, I never usually drink in the day. Mm. Um, but I've, I forgot late, that you're, have. you're like three hours behind me too. So yeah, <laughs> but I, I mean, people do. I don't mind it. It's just usually I'm running around so much. Um, but now, like, it's weird. I think it's having the book out. I feel like there's not that feeling like, oh, maybe you might get two hours to write, you know, this afternoon. So uh, I think I, that's, that's probably why I've been taking more lately. But now I'm coming down. So, so I'm just missing you there. <laughs> well, I hope those Bloody Marys can sort of, you know, power you through this, um, this interview. Next part of the show is a celebration of consumerism. I call it, What'd You Buy? Matt, I'd love to know if you've gotten anything in the mail or purchased anything at a bookstore recently. A bookstore? I just bought uh, this new, new author, new to me, and, and also earlier stage author whose work I love. Um, and her name is A.C. Wise. And I read her short story collection. I, I, can't, I, I think I might have found it in an anthology or something. And I was just kind of blown away uh, by it. I mean, the, the descriptions didn't really do it justice. Um, the, the collection is called The Ghost Sequences. And it was, it's, it's I think, described as like feminist takes on uh, on, on ghost stories, which like I know from being a writer of African American descent, like that mean, that means nothing. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> it's like a, a black takes or take on the English language. You know what I mean? It's just whatever. But this the stories themselves are are brilliant. I mean, really haunting and beautifully written. And and I love genre writing, but I do not like the majority of genre prose. So like I'm kind of um, stuck being forced to read people who have really beautiful prose and really interesting original ideas um, uh, within the different genres. And, and um, that paid off there. So then I read uh, Wendy Darling, which is her novel came out last year that follows um, Wendy from, from uh, Peter Pan. Mm -hmm. um, and it, like, it also has this kind of totally different reassessing way of looking at that original story. And the new one, uh, hooked uh, I bought and I'm looking forward to reading uh, that one next I think that one's out in a couple of weeks uh, but besides that um, I, I just uh, I, I the, when school is out I order too much crap uh, <laughs> I just like I you know, when, when school is in I'm running around so much I can't like just like hit a button every time I have like one of my ADHD you know little thoughts but now that I'm home it's just like random crap showing up at the house all the time. I'm, I'm unfortunately one of those people. <laughs> no, that's great. Did I mean any what what came randomly recently? Anything anything of note? Uh, I mean, you know, it's it, if it was of note, it would be good. The fact <laughs> that it isn't of note is where you find out it's a problem, right? Like I I got I realized Mama Fuko makes has is selling their own ramen noodles. I got that. It rains nonstop in Portland, and now I have too many bikes to basically um, have individual uh, covers for. So I bought a tent just for my bicycles. <laughs> um, I've lost 
like inadvertently lost like 20 pounds recently, largely because I was on a new medication. And so I bought and said it was the choice was to buy hundreds of dollars worth of new pants or belts. So I invested heavily in belts. You know, it's just like little crap like that. But I think it's like, one, I'm still, I'm still in the pandemic. Like a lot of people are not in the pandemic, but like, I'm still at a point where I don't go out very often. And when I do go out, I wear a mask. And, you know, part of it is because I'm, you know, a middle-aged diabetic, African-American diabetic. So I'm like in a high risk uh, area, mm-hmm. but also because it seems like now we might actually get somewhere close to normal by this time next year when all these people have different types of immunities because they've been affected with different versions of COVID and they have different types of, of immunization shots and that's going to be more complicated. So I'm just waiting, waiting for the last of the, of the crazy people to get sick and then I'm <laughs> going to go out. So this is like my consolation prize, you know, to, to just get like, you know, uh, little things that make me feel somewhat alive. I totally get it. And the getting the little gifts thing, I completely agree with. I, I just um, I just purchased a big box of Japanese snacks and candy that just arrived. And just because I love that it's unlabeled. I have no idea what I'm about to open and, and eat. It's just like, it's, yeah. a, it's a fun, a yeah. fun adventure. Um, I also got a couple of really exciting books um, recently. I got um, Natalka Burian, her novel, The Night Shift which is about New York City and secret passageways in the backs of bars and things that are actually portals and they can actually shorten and make New York City smaller for the people that know the secret, you know, portal passageways. And uh, until the person who showed the main character that disappears and then she realizes that she might control them. Um, and it's written by. Do you want to hear something weird? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I just bought that as you said it. As <laughs> you said it, I hit the pre order. It's not all the way out, but I hit the pre order for that. Yeah. It comes out, um, it comes out in July, it comes out very soon. And she, she is the owner of two bars in New York City um, Ramona and Elsa, two bars I absolutely love. Um, I don't know how they made it. I believe they made it through the pandemic if they're still in her um, bio on the back of her arc. But uh, I'm really, really excited about this. And then I also just found this on the street. And it's so funny because it's about it's it comes out next year um, in January 23, which is the first time I've seen a 2023 book from Henry Holt. And this is Josh Rydell's Please Report Your Bug Here. And it's about a guy who is discovers through his dating app there are portals <laughs> so it seems like portals are on people's minds which makes some amount of sense we want to get far away from where we're going but we where we are right now uh, but we don't want to travel you know it's 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 yeah. almost like the most wonderful fantasy is like what if i could really get away but i didn't have to deal with being on a plane <laughs> yeah that makes sense and and just escape right all this Books are likely written during a period everybody wants to escape. Absolutely. I think so, too. I love these AC Wise books. I'm, I'm so curious about them. I, I just want to go back to that because I love Peter Pan retellings. Um, my, my first try at a novel that I, pub- that I self-published in undergrad was a modernization of the Peter Pan story. So people messing around with that myth is something I'm always fascinated with because there's so much to unpack there. I feel like people don't really realize until they actually read the original text of Peter Pan, how absolutely bizarre right. it is. 
and how much there yeah, is uh, there to mess around with? Yeah, I think people often think of the Disney, um, you know, animated version. Yes. Uh, as opposed to real. And this is very similar to Wizard of Oz, you know, where people think of the movie and they don't realize there was a massive, like the Harry Potter of its age, you know, uh, before the movie even existed. And the original is very weird. So weird. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I've read a couple of those and they're, the details are absolutely insane. And they're so much fun. Like there's just things that they could have never put in a movie back then. Right. Um, <laughs> right. Yeah. I, it's, that's another one that gets reimagined sometimes. And even when they reimagine it, it's hard to get, you know, all of that in there. I can't wait any longer. I, I want to talk to you about your novel, Invisible Things. Will you tell our listeners what it's about if they haven't um, encountered it yet? Yeah, I'm, I'm not good at this. I've been writing for 20 years. And I still haven't gotten any, any better at it, but I'm trying. Um, basically, what I was telling people when they were like, what are you doing? Why has it been so long since you've written a novel? Um, as I would say, I'm writing about a city on one of Jupiter's moons that is populated by every person and their descendants who've been kidnapped by aliens over the last 400 years in North America. And that usually got them to shut up. You know what I mean? <laughs> like I was like, oh, okay. And then, you know, walk away. Um, you know, it's so, it's so hard to, I think for me, it's hard to talk about what books are because it, what it means to me, what it means to the reader is different. What it means to me, the individual moment is different. What it means on the surface is different. So like I overthink it, but um, mm -hmm. in part to me, like, I, I wanted I wanted to talk about mass denialism and the invisible things um, is a, a phenomenon that's happening um, in this place that's very much like our own place that no one uh, will acknowledge or people are too scared to acknowledge or people won't even acknowledge it as something that they have to acknowledge uh, and and I think like I wanted to play with the world that was very similar to ours but distant enough that maybe we could see some things a little better you know than we could. Uh, in our own world. And uh, like everything I write, it's funny. I never, I never know why it's funny, honestly. Later, like every single time I read a review and somebody says it's funny, I have to think like, wait a minute, what do they mean? Like, what's funny? Like, it's hard for me to pinpoint like a specific thing that's funny. Mm -hmm. um, but it's apparently it's funny um, just because that's kind of the language that I speak. And uh, I'm surprised people like seem like they like it it's weird like before anybody reads the book in my mind the book is uh no work and no play makes jack adult uh, adult boy like that's in my <laughs> like they're gonna pick it up and it's gonna be like in the shining where there's just one sentence repeated <laughs> and i'm standing over like isn't it great do you like that part you know because it's like all totally in my head and this one was pretty much totally in my head for a very long time that my agent well i should dedicate this um book too. She's been my agent for two decades. Um, read it and like, you know, one or two other people. Um, so it's kind of wild now, even though it's coming out next week, a bunch of people have actually read it and it's still kind of freaky. Yeah. Well, I, I just loved it. I got to do that fun thing where I got it in the mail and I just started reading it. I didn't know any sort of premise that it had. I just was like, oh, that's a neat, neat arc cover. I'm going to check this out. And I completely just kept reading. I just had to. Um, I, I loved every character. I was completely taken with New Roanoke. I guess the place to start might be 
um, Chase, uh, this character who is a conspiracy theorist, sort of. He's like the, the guy at the bar who you don't want to end up next to, who's going to bend your ear and be <laughs> like, you know something about my ex-wife, my wife, um, who's, and so Chase's wife has been abducted. And uh, you ha the, the plot sort of says that his conspiracy theory is correct. How did you... Right. <laughs> how did you well, navigate I mean, writing a conspiracy theorist is right type of narrative? Well, it's, it's weird, right? Because we're in a moment where uh, for a good portion of our population, reality has been, been replaced by completely vacuous and false conspiracy theories, right? And so the people who are in this kind of Fox News right-wing radio bubble over the last 30 years have become sort of unmoored from uh, what the rest of us would consider reality, right? And like, that's just, that's not even partisan. That's just what's happening. So, um, you know, you hear things about Pizzagate and QAnon, like they're, those are the ones that even within that reality are going off and creating these other realities, right? Um, and we have a, a clearly a very big problem that we haven't figured out how to resolve. On the other hand, we also live in a moment where there's a lot of conspiracies going on. Like we are watching public hearings of an attempted coup for the president of the United States that involves um, top leaders in one of our two major parties. And there's seemingly a new, like breathtaking revelation on every time they, they come and tell us a new tidbit. Every time we think we know it all, something else happens and it's kind of mind blowing. That is a full on conspiracy, right? Mm -hmm. And so like, Having both of those things happen, um, I think like it, it just deepens the fact that we are in, we are in a conspiratorial world, not just in the sense that people you know are getting into crazy stuff, but in the sense that there's a lot of people um, fighting for their version of reality. You know, because ultimately, like that's Trump's coup in part was about. You know, it wasn't a military coup. It was a coup to change reality, to mm -hmm. say, you know, the election was stolen, therefore I had to do this, right? The, the fight over reality. These are the, the delegates, the state delegates. No, these are the state delegates, right? Like all of that is reality thing. So, you know, that part was easy to do, especially being from the African-American community. I mean, slavery was a conspiracy, you know? Like, <laughs> like Tuskegee experiment was a conspiracy. Like it's not... Uh, like every time you would go for a job and you wouldn't get it because somebody who's equally qualified um, was also white, that was a conspiracy, right? Mm -hmm. So like from that background, you know, it's not that they aren't dangerous, but that they aren't, um, it, it, they're not something that can simply be written off. The other weird thing that happened is after I wrote the book, the like the New York Times came out, or after I started the book, New York Times came out with their article uh, about literal ufos that that yeah. people couldn't explain um which still we still haven't had an explanation for and we still don't know what that was about but like whether that was a conspiracy in itself or there really things flying around or whatever so i think with all that like it was relatively easy plus like i wanted the i wanted the character to be really human and like one of the things about being human is people laugh at you until you're right you know and I think like every writer knows that feeling, you know, yes. because, you know, you tell people you're writing or you tell people you're doing stuff and they look at you like, uh-huh, uh -huh. you know, and they're kind of like the pity that's there. Um, <laughs> even when, like, even as an established author, like a really bad publisher, even now, like, you know, oh, what are you doing? Well, I'm writing a book. Like, it's just so, like, ridiculous, you know, on its face. Um, so that, like, you know, we're used to that. So 
like the idea of having him be right i think let me have him be even weirder and quirkier you know um because ultimately like that was there and and ultimately he has a lot of temptations over the course of the narrative that are you know that um i hope like from my mind they're both some of them can be are, are are very dark temptations but at the same time very understandable uh t- temptations you know and and so i wanted him to to kind of have that balance and have that that you know dimension absolutely and i think that because he's so human he is a, also a source of a lot of the humor or at least for me just because he he's the clear even though the narrative is full of fish out of water people he seems like the one that's the furthest away from water right uh, <laughs> right right which also makes me more sympathetic to him in some ways too because he's totally out of his depth you know I feel like you're probably someone who is uh, beset with ideas and, and narrative concepts that you want to follow. What what made it time to tell this particular story? Why was this the one that's stuck right now? A couple of reasons. I mean, one, in the most basic sense, I try to think of, there's like a thousand stories I want to write. And there's maybe 30 stories somebody wants to read from me. <laughs> and so I'm trying to get like one of those, you know, where there's crossover. But then after that, like, you know, it's weird. I was just, I was actually talking online with, with Michael Chapman about this, that like, you get asked a lot of times, where was it? Where was the idea for the book? And I find I give a different answer every time, pretty much. And that <laughs> every one of those answers is actually correct, right? Because it just comes in from all these different places. But one of the things that like, I think the very first moments of this book were, it was the beginning of the Trump administration. And I was online, like yelling, like a lot of people who are upset. And, um, you know, I'd yell with all my friends on there, ah, this has happened, ah, you know. Um, and then I went to a coffee shop at the time, I lived in Houston, and there was a main coffee shop uh, that much of my writing program would hang out at, um, at in Montrose, uh, a place called Black Hole. And um, I would see the same people I was ranting with online for weeks and months, and we'd run into other in person, and we'd go, hey, how you doing? I'm good. How you doing? I'm good. Oh, it's good to see. You. Okay, cool. And then that would be it, right? Um, and we wouldn't acknowledge this this monster thing that we've been talking about constantly. And I started to think about like why it was weird, you know. And even if I wanted to talk about it, it was like, how do we even do it? Because one, there was nothing like that could be changed by us talking about it mm-hmm. in person. Um, there was like. It, things that could go wrong. One, you just work yourself up in, the, in your one free moment to get a, you know, a cup of coffee. But also, like, it, topics like that are extremely difficult because unless people agree, agree exactly on, on what something means, you know, not just like have the same partisan leanings, but the exact same interpretation of it, it can end up in an argument really quick. Mm, yeah. Um, and so, you know, nobody would talk about it. And you know, it was just similar to a lot of things I realized from that, that like, there's these huge things going on and nobody was talking about them. Like in, in you know, like writing about them and, they, and they clearly people were thinking about them, but it wasn't like a casual conversation thing in a way that seemed like really detrimental to, mm. you know, or, or it, we were like things like with the issues of climate, like 
you know, we all knew, we all know we're headed to towards what could probably be categorized as a climate apocalypse. You know, I'm hoping we can avoid some of that, but we're headed to more dramatic change in our life because of how we're, you know, using fossil fuels. And yet, and still, you know, we're just also just using fossil fuels all the time. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. So what, it's this kind of disconnect. And so originally when I wrote the book, I was like, I just wanted to get away and look at what was happening kind of in America and Britain, particularly and, and Trump Brexit without having these sort of keystones that immediately locked people in to mm -hmm. how they were thinking about things. But once I got there, the invisible things actually wasn't even a plan. The invisible things was just, just something that popped out in the first draft. It was these hints of something they weren't talking about. And so when I went in for the second draft, I was like, what? They turned like, I meant to do all this stuff and this one thing I didn't mean to do. It's the most interesting part of the piece. So, so I just ran in that direction. That's so exciting when that happens. Uh, that like yeah. something came from your brain that you didn't realize was in there. Yeah, that's where the good shit comes from. I mean, the, the conscious mind is capable of doing great things, but the subconscious mind is, is capable of doing things way beyond, you know, anything we try to do. So yes. like, that's something I work with with my writing students. And, but like, you know, that's, that's always the case that if I try and control it too much, it's going to be flat and predictable and boring. But if I let it go wild um, and have just enough control that you know, like, it, that's where the interesting things come from. I'd love to hear more about how your teaching has affected your writing. Well, it's, I mean, teaching so long, it's kind of hard to even say. I mean, I've been teaching for 20, like officially this year, 20 years. And some of my students are, you know, some of the most prominent young writers uh, in the country right now, uh, particularly from the, uh, the, the black and, and, and uh, larger black uh, group of writers. And some of that's because of teaching at the University of Houston's uh, MFA PhD program for 12 years. A lot of that's teaching at Vona, Voices of Our Nation, uh, summer mm. workshop. Um, Kimbilio uh, was an African-American fiction retreat and Hurst and Wright uh, Foundation, um, as well as things like Red Loaf and other stuff. So I was basically teaching nonstop. So I got to work with a lot of really incredible upcoming talent. I think the, the way it impacted me the most was being forced to articulate things that I would take for granted, you know, um, that like, I, like a lot of my writing is not, I was never a big craft book person. Um, I didn't like, I, I just more about reading fiction and writing fiction, reading writing and not like trying to interpret it outside of that. But when you teach, you have to be able to explain what you're actually thinking and doing. Um, and I think that definitely, uh, helped. It helped me learn structure more, helped mm. me figure out what works with my writing and what doesn't work sometimes and how to address that in editing. And also like for many years, like recently I've been doing screenwriting for many years, I was kind of alone, you know, I mean, it's such an isolating, uh, art cause you're just in a room typing alone for portions of it. So teaching gave me a community, you know, my students yeah. and my colleagues, that I otherwise would not have had. I mean, I can't even imagine. Um, like when I, in the summer comes, you know, like a lot of people, I live in a city I didn't grow up in. I don't know a lot of people here. And that's always been the case for the last 20 years. But I went to summer camp to see my buddies. Um, my buddies just happened to be the faculty at different, you know, writing uh, conferences. 
And so, you know, having that, having the fulfillment of watching young writers like come of age, like, you know, right now on my press, um, coming out two weeks before me with her first novel is Kelly Fargo Anston. And um, uh, her, her novel is called Woman of Light. It's a lovely book. And I remember when she was like this little kid, basically in my workshop, she was the youngest one in the room, um, you know, and that was, I think, 12 years ago. And then watching her grow and, and watching her become, you know, uh, the writer that she is, is, has been amazing. And I think even that workshop, there's another writer, Jamel Brinkley, who's in that workshop, who's a short story writer. And, you know, like all of them, it's, it's like the, the thing when people say, I taught this person, that person, I taught them also 20 or 30 other writing teachers did, you know. Right. But still being able to be one of those 20 and 30 and, and contribute to their journey is it is incredibly fulfilling, you know. Yeah. No, it, it, it seems like it. Um, and it's so cool that you can just sort of rattle off some of the people that you worked with like so many years ago. Yeah, it's weird. I, it's, it's weird to name drop people who you had to grade. <laughs> <laughs> Your novels seem extremely varied. They're, they're quite, they, they're concept heavy and they seem like quite different from each other. Um, what connects your work, do you think? And and what, or what, what are you trying to avoid, maybe? That's interesting. From perspective, they're, they're much more similar. Um, I think it's because the through line isn't like, isn't the genre and the through line isn't the kind of, the, the, the way we would describe these things. They sound categorically very different, but they're all um, pretty much satirical. Um, they all take uh, existing ideas and try to ask new questions with them. And um, they all, to me, feel like it's, it's the urge is to, is to not rewrite the last novel, right? And mm -hmm. to like further um, my skills, further, further like push myself further in general. And, you know, David Muir is, a, is another teacher I taught a long time with at, at Vona. And he had a, a thing that said that you you become the writer capable of writing the book that you're working on. You know, when you start it, you're not that writer. You become that writer. And that and that that uh, artistic mm -hmm. journey is what um, results in a book. And like, so when I start a book, I'm trying to become the writer that will complete that book. And a lot of times that book is very different. I think like career-wise, it's not a good idea. <laughs> career-wise, no, do not do that. You know, because... Basically, career-wise, people want to look at you as a brand and say, this is the type of work you do. And a lot of people, that's just natural. They just do work that's very similar um, so that people know, you know what you're getting with a Raymond Carver book. You know, um, you, you know what you're getting, like, you know, with most writers. If you've seen some of them, you've, you basically got the feeling for it. And I think, like, if you know my work as, as it's actually executed, then you probably do know what a Matt Johnson book is. but um, if you're looking, if you like the book, first book I had was like a, a critical hit was uh, a book called Pym, which was a reimagining of Edgar Allan Poe's narrative of Arthur Gordon Pym, uh, his his first and only novel. And, um, you know, and it did well. And I knew when I finished this, like I could just basically pick up every, you know, right. <laughs> 19th century American writer and redo 
like ex- their their most flawed book, you know. Um, and right. get if away it with don't, it. And, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Like continue on. <laughs> right. And I think, and that I think would have been completely acceptable and understandable, and and most likely would have been um, more uh, commercially viable, right? Um, but I, you know, I could be doing that forever. But I did it. So you know, there wasn't like I already did that part. So mm-hmm. I, it was time to do something different. And you know, the next book was about you know exploring as a as a biracial person uh, exploring the kind of unique uh, position of, of mixed people of African and European descent in America. And, and is it possible to have a mixed identity that wasn't an anti-Black identity? Um, and, you know, and this one is about, you know, uh, alien abductees trying to work through their political strife, right? So, you know, like, yeah, it's, God, when I say it out loud, yeah, they have nothing to do with each other. But if you read the last one, and you read this one and you didn't know I wrote it, you would know I wrote it. You know? Right. Um, because yeah. there's enough of the DNA is there. You know? If if Invisible Things is the first Matt Johnson book that someone reads of you, uh, what do you think they should read next of yours? <sighs> I mean, part of the weird like commercially viable thing is that you get readers who like a certain type of thing and then the next time you piss them off because you don't do that again. You know? right. um, but I think... I don't know. I think the book that people love the most for me is Pimp. Okay. Um, because because uh, it's weird, and I think weird in a, in a, in a I, you know biased, but I think weird in kind of unique way. Um, and I think the book that was most personal to me was The Loving Day, mm-hmm. um, because it dealt directly with issues that I've been dealing with, and also um, like dealt directly with different traumas that I had from growing up and not just around race, but around, um, you know, how to be like, I guess what we would call a non-toxic man in, in, in the society. And so like, personally, that was incredibly important for me. And that, that was why that journey was really fun. But, um, yeah, I, I'm, I'll be interesting finding out. The funny thing is I also write comic books and almost nobody who reads the comics or reads the prose does vice versa which I was surprised at, but that's just like no crossover. <laughs> it's really interesting. <laughs> Do you have to like turn to a different like track in your mind to start writing comics or is it coming all from the same place? It's, I mean, basic storytelling, it's all coming from the same yeah. place, but it's also like, yeah, I mean, I'm a visual writer in prose, but you have to be a totally visual writer in comics. I mean, like my personal goal is be able to tell the story without any words and that the words themselves just accent, um, you know, either character or, or other parts of the, of the story, but they're not necessary for, you know, the actual uh, tale. So you're thinking like along those lines, like, how do I, how do I do this visually? And the same as screenwriting. Like, um, to me, it's like almost the same muscles, uh, figuring out how do I tell the story visually, um, as opposed to description and prose and, and larger exposition. Um, so the big change for me is it really depends on the type of story. So I'm, I'm, one, I'm thinking, could I tell this story um, in a, any better way in any other medium, right? And if it's like, no, um, this one, if you just lean on the, vi- if you lean on the visual aspect of this, that's going to be the most important part. Well, that leads towards, you know, um, comics or film. Then the next question is, as far as venue, like, if like the book, I did the the biggest comic I did was this book called Incognito, which is about um, an African American uh, 
who, who presents as, as uh, European, much like myself, who investigates lynchings in the South um, in the 1920s um, and, you know, pretending to be white and then reports the news back North. And it's loosely based on a real person, um, mm. a guy named Walter White, who was uh, one, uh, one of the heads of the NAACP uh, for many years. So um, when I went to do it, I was like, if I do this as a novel, there's a lot of territory explored in literary fiction around the issues of, of the effects of white supremacy on African-Americans. And as a matter of fact, almost like as you tell somebody you're a black writer, that's the assumption that that's what's going to be. Right. But in comic books, like it, nobody was doing anything like that. It's much more so now, but like 10 years ago, whenever it came out, no one was doing that. So um, it had a much bigger impact uh, in a world where like it was fresh for that, that thing. So it's always that question of like, you know, is this interesting to do in this medium, both craft-wise and also as far as the subject matter? It's so surprising to me that the worlds are that separate as someone who yeah. reads I mean, I read both. both you know? Yeah. <laughs> but even when I was thinking about it, like I read the probably the only writer who I definitely read their prose and definitely read their comics would be Neil Gaiman. Mm. But there's a lot of comic book writers that I just haven't even been tempted, honestly, to read their prose. So, you know, um, maybe, you know, that's a, I'll put that on the list. There's people, um, <laughs> you know, I should definitely be reading that habit. Was there anything you were reading that was helpful while you wrote Invisible Things? I don't like to read novels when I'm writing novels, so I tend to read comics and um and get my storytelling through like, you know, streaming TV and stuff like that. And also short stories and nonfiction. Mm -hmm. So um, I, you know, I read some UFO books that were really neat. A lot of it didn't really get into the book. I think I, I actually, no, I was looking back at the first time when you meet Chase and he's talking about the, the UFO scene. And that's actually based on the real UFO scene, um, scene with the, with the C. And, Leslie Keene is the one who did the New York Times review, a uh, New York Times article in 2017 at, um, on the UFOs. And she has a book, um, I think, uh, I, I think it's phenomenal, but I have to look it up, um, about basically the history of uh, UFOs in America. And um, I read it, it was, oh, it's just called UFOs. I read it and was kind of blown away um, by an issue that I clearly thought was resolved in a lot of ways, regardless of what it is, um, even if it's something completely mundane, it's also something we still don't know. We still haven't identified what that mundane, you know, reason is. So it's, um, that was really cool to realize there's a whole other world of belief system of people who weren't just crazy. They just were looking at different things and asking different questions. Because I'm a, I'm a, you know, most of my life I've been an atheist. I'm more agnostic now, but like, I'm just not, as soon as like, and I've had this at workshops, as soon as like, it gets spiritual. Like I, I, I'm guilty of being the one who has to excuse myself to the bathroom and then goes to the bar, you know, um, <laughs> which I did. I think I literally did one time when we were at Bona and there's somebody lit, they started lighting candles. And I think I was like, okay, you know, <laughs> it's, it's not that this is wrong. It's just, you don't need me for this one. Right. So, yeah. Come to me when you want to work on story structure. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so that, that was kind of cool. And then um, novel wise, like, 
I, I don't know. It's weird. I think I'm probably pulling from books that I read a decade before uh, more than I'm pulling from work in the moment, mm-hmm. you know? And so I'm pulling from 1984, you know, yeah. I'm pulling from a brave new world. Um, I, obviously those are the big ones that are going to pop up. Um, but I'm also pulling from, you know, things like, um, I can't remember how to spell his name, Andrew, Adrian Chachowski, who does the, the um, science fiction, these kind of really fascinating science fiction uh, books. Um, and I started reading his work just to get his book, Children of Time, which really plays with time in a fascinating way. And then, of course, I'm reading like a lot of literary fiction because that's my, my mainstay. And um, some of it is new stuff, some of it is stuff for my students, some of it is classic uh, stuff that I just go back to again and again and again. Um, like Castaway 2, I probably have read like once every three years for like a oh. very long time. Um, that was a book that really made me want to become a writer in the first place. Um, and I've always been fascinated by its, its use of structure. What was the title? Sorry, I missed that. Oh, Catch-22. Oh, Catch-22. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. You may have heard of it, yeah. <laughs> I think, yeah, that's one. Yeah. <laughs> I, I felt like I was getting a sort of a note of Vonnegut while I was reading it. And also some of, um, it reminded me a little bit of uh, George Saunders' uh, brief and terrifying oh, sure. reign of Phil. That I felt like that was... Yeah. In- you know what, the cool thing about Saunders, well, many cool things about Saunders and... and, and uh, encountered a couple of times i don't know him but i've encountered a couple of times he's a real sweetheart but um i think i love about his work is that um it like gives you complete permission to be utterly informal you know lincoln at the bardo when you pick it up it's written in the, the in a tone that you might hear waiting for the bus you know yeah. um it's like he doesn't have that thing where literary fiction has to be something that you wear an ascot uh to create now, I think like one of the reasons he's able to do that um, and, and still be heralded is because he's a white guy, and, you know, because like there's an inherent idea that, that, uh, that white men in particular are, you know, um, uh, have, have a, like an intellectual power on the page. Mm-hmm. That has nothing to do with him. That's just how we usually read. And I, so I was kind of reticent in, in some ways, like as an African-American writer, like if I do that, they're just going to think it's street slam, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but but you know he's so damn good that I just feel like I have uh, th- things that I would hold myself back on because I'd be thinking this isn't this is not going to be interpreted um, as being real and serious if I don't behave in this specific way. Um, he just makes me want to do whatever. He makes like being funny is not really considered high art in america um it's considered a lower art it's not mm. considered a lower art in other places but it is in the states um and like i had to give myself permission really to be funny and and saunders is one of those people that that like who also started with that kind of preconceived notion in the beginning of his writing career mm-hmm. you were hearing him talk about his uh leaving his mfa with a very serious uh, you know, realist uh, collection of short stories, and then learning he that was not him. Um, that like it's something you have to give yourself permission for, which is weird because we're looking for individuality, we're looking for something new, but at the same time we have these kind of unwritten rules in our head about the parameters uh, yeah. for what something new should be. 
Yeah, I mean, I I'm allergic to books that take themselves too seriously. So I I fully embrace when when things are. I just don't I just don't understand the point of reading something that's just serious all the way through. I've always wanted a little bit more lightness um, because things are funny, yeah. even in the most dramatic times. Things can get funny. You know, I really think it, it's a language you speak. And I think if you, if like, as you said, you just said things are funny. Like I see things the same way. That's just how I see right. the world. You know, like everything. I see the humor in it as like, I see the color. Imagine humor is a color. I see that color. So when I'm reproducing it or I'm doing stuff, that color has to be there. Or otherwise it's not real because that's, you know, how I see the world. And I think there's some people who are incredibly serious um, and even not incredibly serious, but just aren't like they don't see comedy in that same way. Maybe they they have a good sense of humor other ways, but it's not their uh, native language, right. you know. And and that's how they get that work. I remember a bunch of years ago, I had a student um, come into my office, a PhD student, and she was like, "I want to learn how to write funny." Mm. Um, and, I, and I was like, "Okay, it's, it's like, can you help me write funny?" And I never tried that before. And guess what? Right. I couldn't. She wasn't funny. You know what I mean? It wasn't like, it wasn't her language. She could do stuff on a page that I couldn't do. Um, you know, because she was, ultimately she learned to speak her specific language. You know, um, like that's and one of the things about being a writer is that you don't get to be the writer you want to be. And a lot of your success is based on how good you are at accepting the writer that you actually are and embracing that, right? And, and the humor is one of those parts. Like I didn't want to, I really did not want to write funny books. I wanted to write like Toni Morrison, very kind of serious books. And not a lot of jokes in Toni no. Morrison books. <laughs> they're wonderful books, but they're not funny. You know? So like, I think like having to accept that, uh, you know, about who we are and about the books you write. I also tend to not really enjoy overly serious people who take themselves overly serious as well. <laughs> so it's not just right. the books. Right. You know? Right. I mean, I, I feel like I've heard this before. I mean, like uh, Lev Grossman has talked about this as well, of like trying very hard to be a postmodernist, like wanting to write a Virginia Woolf novel, yeah. but only being being sort of capable of writing the books right. that he wrote. And, and the books, you know, Magicians is a lovely book and, and, a, and a fascinating series and went on to be a fascinating TV show, um, you know, inspired a fascinating TV show. Yeah. But but yeah, it's but when you read it, when you read it, it's Lev. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, like his DNA is in the is in the thing. Yeah, and, um, I mean, I really enjoyed the writer his brother's you are. writing as well. Oh yeah, his brother Austin, Austin Grossman. I, I like. I feel like never gets enough uh, talk, and um, I think uh, I I love this book. Uh, soon we uh, soon we will be, or I uh, soon I will be invincible. I think was his oh, kind of superior mm -hmm. book. Um, but yeah, I, I unfortunately I I really I still wish sometimes I was a different type of writer, but. You, no, that's that's not how the game works. <laughs> One more question on invisible things. I I just wanted to know the so the characters end up in this abducted abduction city where everyone's been abducted to it, and um, there you're following, of course, our our particular crew that's there, and they all have very different reactions to the world and like that they, you know, someone's immediately starts shucking and jiving and trying to make some moves. Someone can't 
can't deal with it and is constantly searching for what, how does this work? How does this place work? And, and a lot of people are just saying like, no, 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 you just have to accept it. You just have to accept this reality and move forward. And I'm curious, you know, which one of your characters would you, do you align with personally? Like who had the reaction that seems closest to what the reaction you personally would have? to the to the premise of ending up in this that's a yeah that's a good and very tough question i mean the cop-out answer is every one of those um i think is something i'll feel at any given moment like with the but for instance like the coup that we saw happen in slow motion i mean every, like it's weird talking about it after the uh hearings where now everybody's acknowledging what it was but it was pretty clear that's what was going to happen the summer before the election. He was talking down, um, he's saying, if I lose, um, it's stolen. He knew that Democratic voters were far more likely to do mail-in ballots, both because of where they lived and also because of how they were treating the pandemic. So he was disparaging mail-in ballots um, massively. He put somebody in charge of the post office who you know, was basically destroying the post office at the same time that we were depending on mail-in ballots to get rid of them. So it was like, it was very obvious that that was happening. And so there's parts of it, like when that's happening, where you're just like, you know, what are you going to do? You know, you're going to sit here and yell about it all day because everyone's going to look at you like you're crazy. You go back and look at people who were yelling about it and, you know, they look crazy. They might've been right, but it didn't matter. <laughs> they right. still look crazy, right? Right. And then, you know, there's another part of you, like, you know, so the part that just says whatever, this part that goes, is is no one seeing this? It's right here. How is this happening? And, and that part is there as well. I think with my overall thing, I would, but like, if I was dropped in New Roto, I mean, honestly, I would just start writing a book about New Roto. <laughs> you know, like, I would immediately, um, I probably, there I would have been anonymous because I don't think, uh, publication would have worked out that well but like you know i i think that's how i deal is that you know um i think like in the i my realize my artistic impulse is the same impulse that in second grade led me to like draw pictures of my hated english teacher in, in the back of the class on the desk you know what i mean that like that is is a very specific artistic impulse that's probably the purest art i've ever done i wasn't expecting recognition i didn't want money i just wanted to draw you know, Mr. Gavin in a way that showed what a jackass he was, you know? <laughs> so like, I think, you know, that probably, I mean, really that's, that's what I would have done, which, which has pieces of everything, pieces of the Nolani character, the two leads to Chase and Nolani. There's pieces of Nolani, pieces of Chase, pieces of Dwayne who refuses to like, just take it all for granted. Um, you know, like, there's a part that wants to monetize it, you know, you're doing like all those things. So uh, that's the cool thing about the novels is they get, you get to like take apart these different impulses and give them their own corporal form and, and see what happens with them. I, yeah, I mean, I loved it. And I, and I think that's part of why I was so attracted to the novel and why I kept wanting to read it is because everybody had this reaction to the world that seemed like, oh, yeah, I could see being that guy, too. Yeah. It really fascinates me that things can be insane and, and people will act like things are totally normal. You know, like I'm actually writing an article right now about the UFO thing, which is either UFOs or it's like a brain worm that's going around our government at the highest levels because you have people like Obama and Clinton saying this thing is this or it's some big psyop thing. 
every one of those is a let's go to the street streets and yell what the hell is going on nobody's doing it you know like that's fascinating to me. <laughs> like, you know, like you know, and, and Trump really brought that to the head because he was so absurd and uh, so often is so openly corrupt. Um, and we didn't know, like, you know, there was some going into the streets, but you know, it's weird, insane things happen, and you just have to struggle and keep living your life. Yeah, I think that's the craziest thing of all is just that, like, you you can you know look out and see the absolute madness and then like still shut the door and be like i need to go hard boil some eggs or something yeah right <laughs> the, the, the 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 massive absurdity of the universe and the mundane of needing to eat eggs exactly. you know? <laughs> that that's life right there you brought a book that also is um, mashing up the mundane to the insane. Um, Notes on a Burning Age by Claire North. I loved diving headfirst into this book. Um, what made you recommend it to me? Well, one, I feel like like talking like going to the streets. I love uh, her work. Like I love her work, and I'm always shocked that people aren't screaming in the streets about how good it is you know and um like i've said like i like drama work but i need to read good prose or i can't i, I can't stomach it and and she has some lovely prose she has some lovely character stuff she deals with really you know fascinating issues um in all of her work um she started out as a children's author um claire north is actually a pseudonym um, for the, the actual author's name is, is Catherine Webb. I do wonder if one of the reasons, I think she gets attention commercial here, here but she doesn't get as much attention as, as literary fiction as like, you know, uh, writing as art. And I think that's in part because of uh, her background. Right. Um, I don't think that's the same outside the States, but I think that's what happened in the States. And, um, you know, I, people ask me if there's a novel about climate change. And like, to me, this is the book I immediately point to um, that has like the, the probably the, the soundest discussion about, about climate change for, for me personally. And I just love uh, reading her stuff. There's a lot, I see a lot of DNA, like in this one of 1984, the mm -hmm. betrayals, the corruption of people's, um, you know, uh, the corruption of the world, but also the corruption of people individually by a, by a larger system. Um, and knowing this and also not having, not being able to change anything about it, you know, um, all those things, I see, like, you got me going, that's why <laughs> I, I really, I've never met her. I don't have any, uh, you know, uh, stock interest in any of the, her, her publishing. Um, so I say this <laughs> to somebody, you know, I'm not saying this cause I'm going to run into her at a party and I want her to think I'm a nice person. I likely will never meet her. Um, but, uh, she, uh, yeah, her work just kind of uh, blows me away. And and the way she deals with uh, not just the environment, but also how we get eroded by contemporary society, what is spiritual and what is industrial, which you wouldn't think is something that you would even have to ask. But um, in the way she does it, you see it's there. Um, all those things I just think are, are so lovely. Yeah, she... She's another writer who I feel like if you read this one book of hers, if you yeah. like you look back and you're just like, oh, I, I, this 
the, uh, these other books aren't anything like this one. Like it's not necessarily like right. she's not writing for right. the, the Claire North brand, although she is doing very much like, um, the, like high concept. I, re I remember her first novel, the 15 lives of Henry August, which is, right. you know, it's, it's a sort of a multiverse novel in, in some ways. Um, it's, and, and this one is about a post post apocalyptic world where we're right the apocalypse yeah, has they, happened and now we've rebuilt something else right basically the apocalypse is what we are doing right now and now it's coming in after what we've done and like making something in some ways even more horrific than the ashes but she she like yeah 15 lines of harry uh, august is entertaining um touches it is entertaining uh like there's a lot of ones that are like they're fun um, but there's other ones, I think really late, lately, like the one she did before this, the pursuit of William Abbey definitely had that same, like it basically is in part about dealing with colonialism. Right. Um, and, uh, it starts, I think in Africa and, and moves it for, um, you know, so it's like her work does both. One of her, my favorite ones of hers is she does three novellas. Now they're put together as a novel, but they, they're three novellas. Um, called the game house and there's nothing you know there's no larger like political discussion about it, but it's just so good you know it's just really well written and like gripping and and you know fascinating i i think i got into her work through david mitchell's work you know okay. um i interviewed him on stage a bunch of years ago and there was some conversation about you know other other british writers who were doing similar type of work and and there's definitely some overlap. You have different style, but a very some of the universe is almost like the same as some of the stuff that Mitchell's been doing lately. And there's another author along those lines, Emma Newman, who did this wonderful book called Planetfall, which is about like finding this planet that supposedly God has come from, but it's really about somebody who suffers from severe OCD hoarding disorder, and. Um, and the you know the shame of not being able to get rid of things even in the face of God it, itself, right? Mm. Um, and all it, she has a series out of that, and every one when you look at it is actually really about a mental disorder, even though it's all following one storyline. Um, yeah, there's some really interesting stuff coming out of of the, the the British world that to me, like I love reading stuff that's not out of my direct conversation, you know, not out of the people that I hang out with you know, see at AWP, but, but like people <laughs> have something completely different to offer. Yeah. Yeah. I know, I know what you mean. And it's funny because, I mean, we talk about books and translation and reading books from other countries, but like there is no translation needed for a book from the UK. And right. you'd, you'd think like, oh yeah, the, they all come over here, but they don't necessarily like they, or, yeah. or if they do, they don't get the same type of attention. Um, well, just like we have different concerns in Southern America, uh, United States, as we do in the North, it's just can be as simple as different concerns, you know, or different ways of looking at those concerns. You know, I like that. I, I used to live in Britain, um, different points of my life uh, for, you know, for different reasons. But, um, you know, I was always the thing I loved about it was how similar it was um, because of how different it was. Right. And there was that constant kind of friction um, between those things. But yeah, it's the same, like, I really love reading work 
uh, by people who are not like me, which isn't that hard, but, <laughs> but still. Well, I think probably my favorite thing that she's doing in this book, um, and it's it's like the main, it's one of the main um, things that you're following a, um, a a researcher who has fallen away from researching, and the way research works in Notes on a Burning Age is it's people excavating hard drives and going through these hard drives to find the knowledge of the world that fell, um, and. I loved that concept. I loved that idea because as, as someone who is scared of technology in a lot of ways and how it like seems weirdly ephemeral, um, it was kind of exciting to be reading something about how like it actually, you know, with the right tools, you can excavate anything um, and you can excavate the data that we're leaving behind and you know, all of the times that they're pulling things off and they're just talking about like, oh, I, I just I pulled a hard drive and it's just full of zombie novels and zombie stories and yeah. what to do in a zombie outbreak. I was just like, oh yeah, I feel like I probably know that person's hard drive too. Like, yeah. I just feel like what, what story would someone put together from a hard drive in the same way that we've done with all the types of excavation and looking at primary documents? Yeah. Um, yeah, and the, the mundanity of them that like somehow over time ends up being incredibly revealing about who they actually were and not who they, you know, pretended to be, you know, like most of the hard drives are pulling up at porn on them. A lot of the times when they get conversations, they're little snippets of utterly mundane conversations, um, which like, if I had to see any of that right now, just be like, whatever, but having going forward and looking at that through the past, it becomes absolutely fascinating. Like, like watching ancient Viking graffiti. Yes. You know? um, it's it's just some bored Viking with a knife who's <laughs> like who's carving into a log. But then you look back at it thousands of years later, and it's mind blowing. That's when people find the original Matt Johnson drawing on the on the desk <laughs> of Mr. Right, Cabin. right. Oh, <laughs> this they is wish it. They had not watched it yet. <laughs> that would be worth something now. Oh well. <laughs> I felt like. Uh... I, I was I was partially listening to Notes on a Burning Age, and I would never have read the one of the main characters' name as um, Yeorg, which is apparently how you're supposed to pronounce the George yeah. without a, an E name. Right, without an E on the end, right, yeah. But he's reminded he's me... George to me. <laughs> he reminded me of of Bob, of the, yeah. of the of the main antagonist in Invisible Things, of just sort of like... No, we need to use the world that we came from to, you know, set ourselves apart and make our make an elite class here. You know that that yeah. that seems like that that is the human condition. Is someone someone always feels like they need to put themselves ahead because of the yeah. I don't know scarcity mindset. Who knows? Yeah, and there's a pragmatism to it, but it's also like a soul killing process. You know. But usually it's people who don't care about, who are conscious of that and don't care because they value like safety and comfort um, and security and, and uh, ego fulfillment more than they do, you know, their conscious. You know? Right. Right. Another thing that Claire North is doing that I feel like she is much better at than I feel like some other people that try to do this is um i don't know i feel like it's something that uh modern twitter and and tiktok is is sort of lampooning recently where um 
sci-fi and um, genre novels always have something like, oh, we don't call those cliffs. We call those like jibabops or whatever. And I, I, <laughs> she mostly skips over that stuff. Of There's a couple times where you're, where you're like, oh yeah, like why wouldn't that name stay, stay the same? But I will say right. that I absolutely loved uh, her term for tablets um, being inkstones. It yeah. just, it, it, it captured what I feel like, you know, that e-ink, um, Kindle world. Um, and yeah. I don't know, I, I just, I thought that was a really beautiful thing. Like the details like that can, can make or break a book. Like if it's too mon- much of those crazy words and crazy designations for things, I just end up being pulled right out. But when they actually work yeah. and they feel like that's what the characters would have come up with to call that thing. Right. Very right. cool. Or the relevatory about the larger world around it. Yeah. There's a, there's another one, uh, M.R. Carey, uh, who oh. wrote the, the Girl with All the Gifts. He has a series, um, I, I think, uh, I don't know what they, he calls the series, but it's about this character, Coley, um, who Coley and is basically his iPod <laughs> kind of going through the uh, apocalypse. And like, Every the whole world in some way revolves around the equivalent of weapons of mass destruction is the last elements of tech in this world that still work, you know, because it's like thousands of years into the future and very primitive world. And one of the things I really liked about that series was um, you're constantly reassessing the uh, the mundane through the eyes of of somebody who doesn't have any of the same associations with it. And so, like, he's constantly utterly lost, but also. Uh, has insights into what he's encountering that we take for granted, you know, and find really interesting. I'd love to do a book like that someday, but yeah, yeah. The guy, the patience. (laughs) (laughs) I'm excited to see. I mean, I I feel like I have no idea what could possibly do you, do you have an idea of what you might be working on next or is, is that locked down in, in the, in the vault? No, I got, I mean, the nice thing, you can tell people like what you're working on next. They're not going to remember. (laughs) So like, you're not stuck to anything or, you know, like they're later go, what what, what, what were you working on? Um, No, right now I'm working on a book about writing in the form of a bunch of hyper competitive writers who are trying to kill each other. Um, Because under the under the uh, idea that writers should not write about writing, except you have one time, it's one time <laughs> you can write about writing, and so <laughs> this is my one time. And so, like, it's basically, um, you know, all the weirdness about the writing world. I just wanted to put down on the page, um, and including, like, not just the social interactions and the and the and the know the the creative part and the pettiness but also like different writing advice um too the guy has is a has a totally unwanted book craft book that like comes up in pieces of it um so yeah i like again it's like something i'm not supposed to do and i think like there's immediately something tempting you know (laughs) about like you know writers should not write about writing okay (laughs) let me see though let me see right just this once and i actually started that like a lot of books i just started i set out invisible things and my editor was taking a very long time to uh respond i think because a pandemic basically you know messed with all of our heads 
And um, so I was like, okay, you can either get frustrated or you can just start writing uh, something that has no, you know, expectations with it. And I wrote like the first hundred pages of it. It's only like a um, probably three hundred page book, and I wrote the first hundred pages in in about a week. Wow. Um, which is weird because I usually no, I say two weeks. I usually peak will write three to five pages a day. Um, but this one I was writing for the first time in my life. I was writing like a minimum of like 12, 15 pages a day uh, because I just fell into the voice and it, it was so much fun. So we'll see if other people join. Wow. That's, I mean, I, I, I used to have a rule that I wouldn't read books about writing just because I got an MFA there you go. In, in fiction. But, right. but then I read, there, was, there were two novels that broke me of that. Um, Bunny by Mona Awad um, about a writing group and uh, of friends. Okay, I have not read that. All right, thank you. And then right. uh, L- Lucy Ives's novel, Louder Milk or The Real Poet or The Origin of the World. Incredibly long title. Mm-hmm. Great, great satirical novel about, about writing. Um, and I read those sort of back to back and it was just sort of like, oh, I see. I, I like this now. I, I, I can, yeah. my rule can be gone. Well, see, that's an interesting point. Because I think when you, we talked before about genre, almost all my books have some element of genre in them. And I think one of the reasons is that like both those books, are, I haven't read them. I'm looking forward to them. I wrote them both down and I'm looking forward to reading them. But one of the ways I know I can do something interesting is if I, if I take something and just throw something crazy into it that's going to disrupt everything. Right. right. And so in mine, there's like, basically it starts with one of the writers has been murdered um, and appears as a ghost. And the, the main character basically has to figure out what's going on, um, you know, before he's killed as well. Right. Mm. So like having that part there, the reason I need that as an author is not to like make it sensational. It's to, so that I can't get comfortable. Right. And that I'm always somewhat off balance. Because if I'm if I'm off balance, then I can come up with things that I didn't expect and come up with, and I can push myself. I won't get complacent. I won't fall into traps. Um, and I need that because otherwise, especially if I'm here for 20 years, I can pump out like a, a book, you know, that's okay, you know, but I can't, um, the hard part would actually making it more than okay. So like the, the choices then, do you do something that's going to be safe? You know it's going to be decent, but you also know it's not going to be particularly great. You know, it's just going to be solid, but nothing more than that. Even people who like it will read it and not remember it in a, in a month, right? Or you could risk failing. Right. And failing, like, is scary. And I totally fail uh, uh, sometimes. But there's more possibly to gain, you know, mm-hmm. um, that even if you fail in some ways, it's a greater use of your time than writing something that was safe. Um, and if you succeed, it's amazing. You know, um, yeah, that, so th- that right there, like it's been done in really interesting ways and in beautiful ways. Why are you gonna do it? Or what can you add new? Well, the only way I can make sure I do something that's gonna add new is to throw in an element, you know, like that's going to keep everything off balance enough that we're gonna get something unexpected. Color me very excited. Um, that, sounds, that sounds really fun. 
we're we're kind of in this realm already, but I'd love to talk recommendations with you. Uh, it doesn't have to be any books. I feel like we might have thrown a lot of titles at people already. But if you have re- <laughs> if you have book recommendations, you know this is the time, or any uh, any sort of rec that you might have to the world. Hmm. You know, when I think of recommendations, I try to think of like something, as I'm sure you do, something that like people might not necessarily know about. Yeah, you know. Um, that's a bit different. And I think with me, that's probably TV. Okay. I started writing TV in the last two years. Um, I worked on Mike Flanagan's show. It's going to come up the fall last year. It's going to be on Netflix. And I worked on a show um, by a wonderful uh, showrunner, Monica Belitsky. It's going to be, it's ca- uh, called Manhunt. It's about the hunt for John Wilkes Booth. It's going to be on a, on Apple TV. Um, so I've been deep diving in a lot of, you know, different shows and uh i find a lot of times there's shows i'm watching that like no one else is watching and nowadays that's not acceptable because <laughs> if they don't watch it the show's going to get canceled so i find so I, like i'm on twitter like please watch this show you know yeah um just so you know uh somebody else gets into it and so like i really enjoy the the new version of uh the man who fell to earth you know based on the um the movie that uh that David Bowie was in. Um, okay. That it's it's fascinating. I really loved. Uh, it's fascinating for a bunch of reasons. One, well, the characters, the actors are mostly black, and I, I just realized like three seasons before, I would have killed for this in the mid seventies, and here I just took it for granted. You like because you know they're such amazing actors that you see that. Right. Um, outer Outer Range, uh, with which um, it was about this farm in Wyoming where. A hole opens up in the ground, a mysterious, like time-shifting hole. Uh, absolutely fascinating. And if nobody watches it, it's going to get killed. I like From. I told my buddy Victor Laval about From, and he hates it. <laughs> like he won't trust me on any advice in the court. But I loved it. It's like a horror version of Lost, um, and as Harold Perrin, oh. which you know, I I just love as well. And um, you know, the um, I think uh, Tales from the Loop which is actually oh. based around a, uh, a science fiction stories, shorts, that's based around an actual a visual artist's work. Um, uh, Simon Stalenhag, I think is how you pronounce his name. Um, I've never even seen like a series based around paintings, you know? Yeah. Uh, he does these surreal science fiction paintings that, that are just like absolutely fascinating. So like, I think there's so much A plus television right now that, um, like A or A minus TV doesn't even get watched. Because you know I mean? <laughs> yeah. like you don't have enough time to watch anything but something that everyone agrees is completely knocking it out of the park. And for that reason, you know, it just it's not like you you might be missing something that's going to connect with you uh, right. more than everybody else. You know. Yeah, and it's it is like a funny time for it too because you're like, yeah, I'm into this really niche show. It's you know, it's starring like. I don't know, uh, like Julia Roberts or and Steve Carell, and you're just right. like, wait, what? What? What, what? channel is right. that? Exactly. <laughs> I've never heard of it. Before. Yeah, uh, is that cool? Like, be, I mean, I, I'm, you know, I'm 51. Like, I remember when there was very, very uh, little quality television, and and like people would scoff if you said you watch TV, you know. So like, yeah, to have so much happening, I mean, it's gonna end, you know. Like, it's just no way 
that I think can sustain. We're already seeing the beginning. But like slow horses about these failed MI6 agents with like Gary Oldman in, yeah. in the lead. And amazing. Um, but you know, unless you're like a real TV watcher, you don't hear people even talking about shows like that. Yeah. Well, I'm going to recommend a, a, an obscure little YouTube video that I saw today. Um, I don't, it's not little, it's like over an hour long, but it's, it's this YouTuber found this, um, this church that does incredibly over the top, huge budget plays for their Easter service. And each time that they, it's, it's always the, the Easter story, the Easter, you know, the Jesus being put into the tomb story, but they find like, there's a back to the future version. There's an Avengers version. There's a pirates of the Caribbean version. And she just sort of goes through them and, and finds like the funny little moments. It's an incredible video. Jenny Nicholson's church play cinematic universe is what she called it. Um, and it's just one of these things which is just like, it's just confirmation that the universe is stranger than we could have ever possibly known. Um, and I just, I highly recommend checking this one out. And, and really any of her, she deep dives in all sorts of weird little things that you wouldn't normally find online. Um, but but she does. I've seen eclipses of that. They are, I mean, I, I, they're fascinating. I think that's the best word for them. It, absolutely yeah you're just like what it's just fascinating it's just completely like i i'm watching yeah. it like i'm watching a like an ant farm or something just like huh <laughs> this is yeah. happening somewhere i like because part of that when i watch it like of course it's funny it's cringy but there's also this element that like very human about it you know right. what I mean? like they're taking this massive big budget things and they're like totally earnestly like doing it on stage like hey i'm iron man you know, yeah like, that's something so cool about that there there it, it is and 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 like they've clearly a lot of lo love went into like hand making these like really fantastic right. sets and everything it's just it's just something there's something so lovable about the whole thing even though it's also like you know a weird church thing yeah. You can actually, you can go on so many damn and click on this episode and click and see all of the books mentioned and um, all of the, anything that we talked about, I, I link and, and make sure that it's available for you to check out. And uh, so you can do that. You can also just go on patreon.com slash SMDB if you want to give me any money. <laughs> uh, if you subscribe at the $5 level right now, I'm sending everybody at that level and above um, a sticker in the mail. I'm really excited that they're very cool and they show your allegiance to the show and they also are just true. There's just so many damn books out there. And uh, also, you know, you need to go buy Invisible Things by Matt Johnson. It really, it's my favorite thing I've read so far this year. I read it in too quickly i'm excited to reread it i think i might <laughs> i might listen to the audiobook for a second um go through on it i absolutely loved it thank you so much for writing it and hanging out with me thank you so much it was fun talking to you and uh i will see everybody soon go and rate and review on itunes and uh bye